Hey, tr- <laughs> we're gonna start over. We're not gonna do that. Hey, church, thanks for tuning in for this uh, special stream of the sermon. You know, we're in a weird moment right now and a concerning moment as a community and as a congregation. So let me kind of explain to you the challenge that we're in as a church in light of the broader challenge that our community is facing. You know, what we're called to as the body of Christ is not to make decisions, but to make discernments. And that is a difference. You know, a spiritual discernment is based on prayer, it's based on study of the Word of God, and a serious and thoughtful consideration for our neighbors and our community. And so as this coronavirus epidemic has spread, and now pandemic has spread across the world, our leaders have been tracking it. We've been paying attention to what government officials like the CDC are advising us to do. And ultimately, we made the difficult spiritual discernment to postpone our services for the time being. And so for a moment, I just want to speak into that and kind of give you a window into the complexity of that decision so that you can appreciate it. And also so that you'll know how to be praying for us as we move forward as a church. Here's what we believe as a church. We believe that God is present among us in a special way when we gather together. And because of that, we prioritize our times of worship when the entire body comes together to glorify God. And we also believe that we serve a God, a Savior in Jesus Christ, who cared about others more than He cared about Himself. And you see that when Jesus commands us to love God and to love our neighbor. And then you see that in the cross of Jesus. And so in the time of a viral pandemic, the church lives in a really difficult tension because on one hand, like our Savior, we are not going to live in anxiety about our own well-being. But on the other hand, we're called to love our neighbors and our community and to protect those who are most vulnerable among us. So again, a window into the complexity of this decision, this discernment. You know, I want you to imagine if we had held services and one of our nursery workers or one of our huddle leaders had later tested positive for the coronavirus. Or what if we decided we're only going to invite those who are low risk to come be part of this worship service. We're going to encourage those who are high risk to stay away. Well, that is good protocol, but the challenge, of course, is that those who are low risk can still be carriers to those who are high risk. And that's a heavy burden to think about if our gathering communicated some virus that was then taken to someone who was high risk and who suffered greatly from it. And so again, you see that the church is living in a real tension between not being consumed by our anxiety over our own personal well-being, and on the other hand, caring for our neighbors and loving our neighbors well like Jesus calls us to. So ultimately, our elders decided that we would glorify God in this moment by making that difficult discernment to postpone services for the sake of our community, our neighbors, and those who are most vulnerable. And I believe that decision does glorify God. But here's the deal, right? We derive strength from being together. It, It stinks to not be together, right? And some of us are probably more anxious in this really anxious moment. Some of us are more anxious right now precisely because we're not together with the body like we normally are on Sunday, the the group that we derive our strength from. 
And so I want to encourage you in what God says to us. <clears throat> we read this in Psalm 62, 8. Sorry, the psalmist says this about God. He says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. That's Psalm 62, 8. And then we read this in Psalm 68. <clears throat> Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. <clears throat> so what we want to do in our time together this morning, <clears throat> a little different than normal because we're not gathered in the same place, but we know that you are gathered in your home, with your family, with those you love. And in a sense, we are together spiritually as a body right now. And we're praying that God <clears throat> does something transcendent in this moment even as we're scattered across our city. So here's what we're going to do that is like normal. We're going to look at the Word of God together and see what the Word of God has to say to us this morning. <clears throat> so in Luke 4, Jesus comes onto the scene and He announces that He has come to bring pris to the freedom. He has come to bring freedom to the prisoner, to set the oppressed free. And so you hear this echo of Psalm 68 there. Our God is a God who saves. And then you see Jesus arriving in Luke 4 saying that he has come to save, to provide freedom. And in that passage, we're seeing something about God. Okay, God is saying something through Jesus about who he is, that he is a God who brings freedom and that he is a God who saves. And also we see after that, that Jesus comes to do that, to declare the year of the Lord's favor. So God's freedom and God's salvation is tied up with his pleasure and his favor. <clears throat> so a couple of weeks ago, Lindsay and I had our uh, folks in town, the boys' grandparents, they came to town. And we love it when they come to town. The boys love it because they get spoiled with gifts and presents. And Lindsay and I love it because when they come to town, we get at least one night of free babysitting. Right? Just one, one night of free babysitting. And so they came into town. It had been too long since Lindsay and I had had a date. Deacon was only a few months old at this point, and so we hadn't, hadn't left him with a sitter yet. So we were desperate for some time together to just look longingly into each other's eyes and whisper sweet nothings to each other all night long, just her and me. We just needed a date together. So we went out to this uh, burger place that we had never been before. <clears throat> and we walk into the burger place, and I hear somebody say, Hey, Eric! And I think to myself, oh no, it's someone from church. Fortunately, it wasn't. Not, not that I wouldn't want to see you all, you lovely people. I'd love to see you. It's just that I'm on a date and I'm trying to romance this lovely lady here. This isn't a time to talk about committees and sermons and the growth on your foot or things like that that you need prayer requests for. I'll absolutely pray for those things. But on a date, I want to have a date. But I look over and it's not somebody from church. Turns out it's a brother from the prison class that I lead with Hope Works on Wednesday mornings who had been released. And I see him over and he's flipping burgers on the grill. And he says, hey, Eric, hey, Eric, I'm about to get off. Let me come and holler at you for a second. <clears throat> and I say, that's great, man. That's awesome. We'll be over here. So Lindsay and I, we go and so we sit down. We take each other by the hands and we begin to look longingly into each other's eyes. And we begin to whisper those sweet nothings to each other. And then he comes and he sits down right beside me, which is great. I'm happy to see this guy. I want to hear about how he's doing. And Lindsay's really gracious. She wants to hear about how he's doing as well. He begins to tell us, you know, he tells us 
HopeWorks got him this job and then the six months since he's been released and working for this burger joint, he's risen from just flipping burgers to now he's actually a manager and he closes down a lot of nights and he tells me that he's seeing his son regularly now. He actually takes his son to baseball practice. He's providing for his son. He promises me that he's going to church and he's praying regularly, studying the Word of God. And I just tell him, man, I'm so proud of you. And I put my hand on him. I say, bless you, brother. I'm proud of you. And then I say, well, it was so good to see you, man. And he says, yeah, it's so good to see you too. And then he just keeps sitting there talking. Now, about what, I don't remember, because frankly, at that point, the only thing I was thinking was, this brother is not getting the memo. <laughs> you know, we're on a date right now, man. I'm trying to romance my bride. And he continues to talk, and finally, I kind of butt in, and I say, brother, man, I'm so proud of you. It's good to see you. And he says, yeah, Eric, it's good to see you too. So he ends up sitting with us for the whole dinner, and then he walks us to our car, opens Lindsay's door for her, and waves to us as we pull away from the parking lot. So we had our first date with an ex-inmate. And if you're looking for a third wheel on your date, I know just the guy. He, he won't mind a bit. You know, I, I, I'll admit that was not the way I would have scripted that date. But there's something pretty beautiful about running into those guys in the free world. You know, I come to know them as their prisoners, as they're in bondage, in a sense. And to see them in the free world, even if I'd rather not see them in the middle of my date, that's a pretty special thing. Remember that movie Shawshank Redemption, when Andy, who's been imprisoned, breaks out and he crawls like 500 yards through a sewage pipe and he spills out into this ditch as the rain falls down and he begins to rip the prison uniforms off of himself and he falls down on his knees and he looks heavenward. You know, there's something transcendent about freedom. It's something that even the Hollywood movies are trying to capture. <clears throat> I think about those at this church who understand freedom much better than, than I'll ever, ever understand it. I think about one of our members, Ken Wells, who's this incredible man of faith. And Ken's story is that he was a POW in Vietnam. And <clears throat> part of the reason Ken is such a faithful man today is because he understands better than most of us how sweet freedom is. When you've known bondage, you can taste the sweetness of freedom, this heavenly sweetness that otherwise you may not understand. And I'm reminded of the African-American spirituals that were sung by slaves. And then again, during the civil rights movement about freedom, they sang this, over my head, I see freedom in the air. Over my head, O oh Lord, I see freedom in the air. There must be a God somewhere. When I say freedom's transcendent, that's, that's what I mean. That when we encounter freedom in our world, that vision, that experience points us to God. So we're in the middle of a series right now in the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And as we follow each day in the last week of Jesus' life on this earth, we learn about what's most important to Jesus. I mean, just think about it. People reveal what's most important to them in their final moments on earth. And indeed, that's what Jesus does. And if you look at that last Wednesday of Jesus' life, the last earthly Wednesday before his death and resurrection, we see something just really briefly because we don't know a lot about Wednesday, but what we see on Wednesday then leads us into Thursday, 
And it's really important to pay attention to what happens on this Wednesday. This is in Mark 14, verses 1 and 2. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. So in Matthew's version of this same passage, he adds that at that moment, the Jewish leaders who are together conspiring against Jesus are over in the palace of the high priest named Caiaphas. And in his palace, they're scheming, they're plotting, they want to kill Jesus. But notice in this passage, they don't want to kill Jesus yet, right? So why? So at the time, this is Passover, and you got to remember, Jerusalem is bursting at the seams in this moment. Jerusalem quadruples in size at the time of Passover. So people have come from all over the place to be here in this moment. And those were the very same people who just a few days ago were celebrating as Jesus rode triumphantly into town, okay? And so what these Jewish leaders know is that nobody likes a party crasher. And if they kill Jesus during the middle of this party, they're gonna have a big mess on their hands. So to get rid of Jesus, to get him out of the way, they need to get these people out of the way. They want to kill him, just not yet. But here's the thing. Things are not going to go according to their plan. What we see here, and in the next passage, is that they plan to kill Jesus later, but God is on a different timeline. So let's look at this. This is in uh, Mark 14, 12. This is what we read on Thursday when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. So that's Mark 14, 12. So we know it's about to happen. On Thursday, they're going to pass, they're going to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Well, then in Matthew 26, we read this. Where will you have us prepare? This is on Thursday now. This is Jesus' disciples asking him, where will you have us prepare for you to eat this Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, don't miss this. At Passover, Jesus says, no, my time is now. And he's talking about his death, right? The cross. Now, the religious leaders over in Caiaphas's palace, they're planning their own very different timeline. But Jesus says, my time is now. Passover is my time. So you remember what happened at Passover, right? You remember where we derive that story of the Passover. If you were a Jew, you certainly would, because our Jewish brothers and sisters, every year they retell the Passover story at a meal called the Seder. And that Passover story is told as part of a larger story of the Exodus, and what I'd want you to pay attention to if you were able to eavesdrop on a, on a Jewish Passover Seder is what you would hear is that all the language is in the first person. So as they retell the story of the Exodus and the Passover, which is a central event in that larger story of the Exodus, they tell it as though it is happening to them, as though it's their story. It's not, it's not a story that happened back then to those people. It's our story. And they tell that story like Moses taught him to tell that story in Deuteronomy, like this. My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down into Egypt with a few people, and he lived there, and he became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But 
The Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. And then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice. He saw our misery, toil, and oppression. And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's Exodus. With great terror and with signs, great terror is the night of Passover, and with signs and wonders, he brought us to this place and he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Passover is a central event in this larger story of the Exodus. You know, it starts with Egypt is in slavery for 400 years. And then God hears their cries. God sees their bondage. And then God comes to free them because God is the God who saves. And what we learn about God in the Passover story is that once God's mind is set on freedom, that there is no power on earth that can stop him. So Pharaoh and all of Egypt's armies cannot stop God from bringing bringing his people into freedom. The Red Sea, the mighty waters of the Red Sea can't stop God from delivering his people. He parts those waters with a wave of his hand. You know, once the God who saves has a mind set on freedom, there is no power on this earth that can stop him from accomplishing that freedom. And in the center of that larger story of the Exodus is this night. And we read about this night in Exodus 12, when death visits the nation of Egypt, but the Israelites have wiped above their doorposts the blood of the lamb of Passover. And death passes over each of their homes that night. And that night, the night of Passover, is the beginning of their freedom, right? What we see here in this passage of Matthew is Jesus saying, Passover is my time. Passover is my time. Uh, let, me, let me try to give you an example of what's going on here. And this example isn't, you know, isn't even going to touch the hem of the, the garment what Jesus is fully saying here, but it'll help you get a sense of what's happening. So imagine that you wanted to throw Breeshin Hatcher a party. And you came to Breeshin and you said, man, we want to throw you a party. He said, that's great. I've been working on my dance moves every Sunday. I've been ready for this party for a long time, just waiting for you to ask. And so finally, he agrees to this party and you're finally ready to throw it for him. And so you tell Breeshin, you say, Breeshin, when do you want to do this party? And he says, oh, I don't know. Let me just pick a date randomly off the top of my head. How about uh, July 4th? Right. You'd say, man, that doesn't seem random, Breeshin. You know, that, that date's kind of a big date in our, in our nation's history. It's kind of a special thing. Like, that's the date you're, you're going to choose for your your party? Are you, are you trying to say something about yourself? Right. Okay, yes. Ding, ding, ding. And that's exactly what's happening here. Jesus is trying to say something about himself. When Jesus says that Passover is my time, Passover is the time that God has selected for me, this national, this national holiday, this moment when Israel's freedom starts, when Jesus says, Passover is my time, God is saying something through Jesus about himself. And this is what he's saying. God's leaning forward in this moment, in the last week of Jesus's life. And he's saying, I am still the God who saves. I am still the God 
of deliverance. You know, those religious folks over in Caiaphas's palace, they think they're calling the shots. Well, they should ask Pharaoh how that turned out for him, right? They think they're going to decide how and when this goes down. But what they don't realize is that they are up against the God who parted the waters of the Red Sea. They're up against the God who destroyed the armies of Egypt with the wave of his hand. They're up against the God who destroys all those who oppose his plans because he's the God of Passover. He's the God who delivers. One writer said it like this. They may be sequestered in the palatial home of the high priest Caiaphas to scheme against Jesus. And they may have the military acumen of Rome on their side, but they are no match for the God of the Passover who was and is and forever will be in charge of the history of salvation. You know, Jesus says, Passover is my time. And it was. It was. About 25 years later, the early church is still reflecting on what Jesus said, what they saw in Jesus. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You know, what he knew and what the earliest Christians knew was that this was a profound truth. You know, when Jesus says, Passover is my time, and he's speaking about his death and resurrection, that he was, he was saying something that had life-changing implications for all those who had come after. He was saying that in him, in Jesus Christ, that you and I have all been moved from bondage into freedom. That God has delivered us all into this new life that on this moment 2,000 years ago, this Passover 2,000 years ago, God was doing something in Jesus that not only changes our lives today, but changes our eternity. You know, in this moment, Jesus is showing us that our God is still the God who saves and that you and I have been liberated in Him and that we stand in this world now as representatives. We are the proof, as Paul says in Romans, that creation itself, that all of creation itself, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What he's saying is because this Passover was his time, it's my time. It's your time. Because Passover was his it's ours. You know, I know we're, we're living in this strange and scary moment. You know, it feels like the world is against us at times. Like the world is, is this pressure that's sh- just strangling down on top of us. Like the world is this finger that reaches down and claws at us and that presses down upon you and me. And it's, it's really not that hard to see. I mean, if you, if you go to the beach and sit outside all day and don't wear sunscreen, what's going to happen, right? You'll be burned. It's like the world itself is hostile. When we think about all the, the pressure that we receive from the media we watch, from the internet, from various things pushing in beside us and upon us. I think about the call you may get from your kid's school or the pressure you're getting from your boss at work. It's like the world is squeezing down on us. And now we're in this... This moment, this sickness, the coronavirus is spreading. And, you know, we're feeling this world's invisible pressure in a, in a new way. 
You know, there's this invisible thing that we can't see, but we feel it like constricting itself around us. And it's this thing that lingers on doorknobs and stairway railings and in someone's hand when they cough and you're afraid to, to shake, right? It, and if you're not afraid for yourself, you're afraid from some, for somebody you love, like a child or for somebody with an existing condition or someone who's elderly and you think about what may happen to them if they get sick and it scares you and it's spreading. It's like, it's like each day this, the world's sickness, this coronavirus thing evolves. Like, like new things are happening relating to this sickness every moment of the day. It's like new news comes out and it's reaching new places, shutting down events and gatherings, like even our gathering here at church, canceling our plans. And you get into this, this, this moment where every cough is fearful, every sneeze makes you anxious. And some reports are offering these, this chilling data that as many as 40 to 70% of people will, will get this sickness at some time. I don't know if that's true. It's like this world is pressing down on us though. I hear that and I'm, I'm anxious about it and I'm scared and it's pressing down on us on the schedule that we don't control. On this timeline that feels out of our hands and out of our grip, it's like the world is against us. And Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you know when he said that? On this night. He said that in the last week of his life. You know, did Jesus say that because he didn't know what was coming? Did Jesus say that because he never experienced sickness or sin or sorrow or death? No. He knew exactly what was coming. And he knows more about those things than you and I ever will, right? He said that because he knew he was in the hands of the God of Passover. Even as he faced his death, Jesus knew he was in the hands of the God who saves. And all the powers of Egypt couldn't overcome that God. All the schemes of Caiaphas couldn't stop that God. And I'm telling you, coronavirus is not going to beat that God. You and I are in the hands of the one who has overcome. We are in the hands of the God who saves, right? And Jesus acknowledges that doesn't mean our world won't be without trouble. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus himself died at the hands of this world. But what Jesus calls us to by declaring that Passover is his time, what he calls us to is to surrender those anxieties to him, to place them in his hands, to give them to the one who parts the waters and raises the dead. Because if we learn anything in the last week of Jesus's life, it's that death will not have the last word. Church, I know many of us are scared in this moment, but our God is the God who saves. And I don't know what will come for this church, for our body and for our community. And I know that's a frightening prospect. But we are on God's timeline. We are in the hands of the God of Passover and our God saves.
And my prayer for you is that you will know the confidence and hope that comes from placing yourself in the hands of that God. Let me pray for us. God, we believe you are the God who saves. We believe that you are the God of the Passover. We believe, God, that you have not only moved each of us from death into life, God, but that you will be glorified in all things on this earth. And so we pray, God, in ways that we can't currently understand or comprehend or predict that you will be glorified in this moment. God, we pray that revival would spark, would spread out across our city, across this world in some way because people are calling on your name from their anxious places. God, I pray that all people would turn to you believing that you and you alone are their refuge, that you and you alone are the God who saves. And I pray that they would know this through the power in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in his mighty name, in the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.